Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening. I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater in New York City. We have got a crowd full of smart people, and we will bring them on stage to tell us something interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. If all goes as planned, we'll all be a bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host, the actress and producer, Sass Goldberg. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sass, let's see what we know about you so far, okay? We know that your breakout role was playing Kiki in Significant Other on Broadway, which many of you I'm sure saw. We know, Sass, that you co-wrote, produced, and starred in the film Are You Joking? with Hannibal Burris and Vanessa Ray. We know that your earliest performance was a lip-syncing contest at summer camp, and you were playing Madonna, but you got stung by a bee on your lip, and you had to go to the infirmary. I actually made it back from the infirmary. Oh, God bless and, you. And uh, I prevailed, and we came in second place, so no big deal. All right, so Sass Goldberg, tell us something we don't yet know about you. Um, something you don't know about me is that I do not like my fingers to get pruny in the water, <laughs> so I don't love like any kind of bodies of water, baths, pools, uh-huh. oceans, yeah. Yeah. Sho- do, I mean, Do you shower? My husband would beg to say that I could shower more, honestly. Yeah, yeah, but I yeah. do shower. Yeah. <laughs> when you say you do shower... Like, I've that, showered. You've showered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Sass, we're happy to have you here tonight for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it's going to work. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story on a topic of their choosing. Sass and I will hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and then our live audience will vote for a winner. The vote will be based on three simple criteria. Number one... Did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? To help out with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time human fact-checker, A.J. Jacobs. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Great to have you, A.J. A.J. is the author of four New York Times bestsellers and hopefully a fifth. It's all relative. A.J., I understand CBS is turning one of your books, The Year of Living Biblically, into a television show? That is true. It is a sitcom. It'll start in January, and uh, it could be fun, but it is completely terrifying because I have zero control over it, and there is a character based on me And in the first 30 seconds of the first episode, the character confesses to a pot-smoking habit, which I actually don't have. Oh, my goodness. I'm not particularly opposed to smoking pot. I'm just too lazy to figure out how to get it. AJ, very nice to have you. It is time, I should say, to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our first guest, Jason Hairston. Jason, uh, where are you from? What do you do? California. And nice. yeah. I am in the apparel business. I make uh, technical apparel for the hunting market, specifically for big ex- mountain expeditions that go into the Yukon and Alaska. Interesting, yeah. Now, how do you come by this? Are you a lifelong hunter, I, I grew up with a father who was passed it down to me, who was passed down from his father. Then I played linebacker for the Niners and the Broncos back in the mid-90s. It's okay. a big deal. 
oh, thanks. And then I built my first brand, Sitka, in the hunting market, sold that to Gore-Tex in 09, and turned around and started another brand and sell directly to our customers. What is the name of your firm now? My current brand is called Kuyu. Kuyu. K-U-I-U. That's a place in Alaska? It is. So SAS is ready, AJ's ready, yeah. I'm ready. Tell us something that you think we would like to know that we don't know about the kind of expeditions you do. About how to hunt- prepare. How to There's prepare. There's a lot that goes into it. Uh-huh. And because you're, you have nobody there to help you and you're gone for two weeks in the mountains, you have to do every little thing to make sure all your details are covered. Is this like a Bear Grylls situation? Kind of. Okay. Yeah. All right, so tell us something we don't know about this that we might find fruitful. Well, because you have to prepare for everything. Yeah. Your feet can be your Achilles heel. Yeah. So one of the things that I do and recommend to our customers is to break your feet in. One of the arduous things I do in preparation for one of these hunts is during really hot weather, I put a heavy pack on, cinch my boots up really tight, and will hike until I get severe blisters on my feet. <laughs> you let pre- them heal. You pre-blister your pre-blister feet. my feet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do it at least twice uh-huh. before I go on one of these trips because if you don't, you could face blisters because of the terrain, the conditions, and the wet weather that we get into. Isn't the hope that you're going to, like, someone like you might sell me a boot that won't give me blisters? Well, in people the first... always say that. I, I, I make our own boots. And you make your you own make boots? You make your own boots? We do. Yeah, I work with a company out of Italy and design. Like a company. Oh, like, you yeah. mean like you craft yeah. your own shoe? No, I'm not a cobbler. Okay, no, got it. no. I'm not that talented. Got it, got it, got right. it. Wait, why do you have to be in the heat to do the... Because it makes your feet swell. It I know about that. It makes your feet sweaty. <laughs> and then if you carry a heavy pack during those hot conditions, your feet will typically blister. Fun. So you go Super out, fun. You, you pre-blister. Okay, so here's a question. Do yeah. you have to do this every season? Do every the, season. Every season. So the blisters yeah. wear out. Well, they come out, yeah. They, yeah. They so do. you pre-blister your feet. Depends so on how bad they get. Basically, you're telling people how awesome it is to go out into the woods and mountains for a couple weeks, but just to make sure that you suffer enough, what you, you want to do is first is some pre-suffering. Right? Help the suffering. Like, describe where you're going and what you're sure. actually doing. And I mean, we're going to the most remote places on Earth, to the places we go. We get flown in on a bush plane. It's either in, like, the Yukon or Alaska. We're up near the Arctic Circle, and... It's as uninhabited as ever been because there's and no what, man there. what do you there. do there? Do you just and we're do typically, and we're, you... we're hunting. Oh. Um, so we're hunters. It's the ultimate test of mind, body, and soul as a hunter. All right. Now, Jason, I want you to take a look, really take a look at me and tell me, if you brought me there along with you, how many days would it be until I died? <laughs> I don't know if I get you past the first. Really? Wow. Yeah. That bad. Harsh. No. Is it I the glasses? Could, I could get, if, if you would listen to me and listen to what I had to offer as far as gear and getting ready for yeah. it. Yeah. No, I'm, I, get you, I'm I get you through it. It's amazing. It's amazing. What's the longest you've ever been away from? Uh, 21 days. Holy cow. And where yeah. was it? That was up in the Northwest Territories. McKinsey Mountains, just below the Arctic Circle. And what are you hunting there? Usually sheep. Really? Or moose or caribou. Uh, all three. So they're wild sheep, I gather? Or you just they're go on someone's sheep. farm and you're not? You're not <laughs> no, there. not the kind that you can put in the fence, no. Stone sheep. How big is a stone sheep? Well, they weigh about 280, Holy 290 cow. pounds. Yeah. You're kidding. AJ. They live in really rugged, remote all places. Right. I'm on it. Yeah. I'm on it. And wh- what do you do with them afterwards? <laughs> we butcher them and pack out the meat, and we eat them. So they're delicious. How do you, uh, if you're gone that long, how much, you're hunting obviously for food, how much food do you carry with you, two, and how much do you need to eat on a trip like that? I carry two pounds of food a day that has about 
4,336 4, calories. So about double what one of us might supposed to eat in a given day. Yeah. 2,000, 2,200 calories. A couple Big Macs, yeah. Yeah, and what is the food? It's a mixture of dehydrated dinners and breakfasts and then pro bars and bars and regular foods as well. Do you have enough so that if your hunting is not successful, you're not starving to you death? You have to plan on not being successful with okay. food. Okay, yes. Yeah. Although this year we did run out of food because we ended up having to stay a couple, an extra day because the f- planes couldn't get in to get us because of the weather. Uh-huh. So and we, had, we had, literally had to eat the sheep we harvested to survive. Oh, but that's what they're there for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. Um, AJ, so many things to check here, including the 260-pound wild sheep. I did find a site that says stone sheep get up to 250. All right. So lie, complete lie, the 260. They're underestimating it. <laughs> it was a big one. That's a small one. Yeah, gotcha. you're wrong. We shoot only the big old ones. <laughs> I did look up a little bit about the history of expedition hunting, and uh, as you might know, Teddy Roosevelt, he's the king of Four hunting. Father. After he was president, he went on an 11-month safari in Africa where he and his crew killed 11,397 animals. The guy liked killing animals, yeah. Also, last thing on Teddy is you might know the famous story of how he was on a hunting trip out west while he was president, and he decided not to shoot a black bear because the bear was too injured, too small, and that was how... The teddy bear was named. What is less well-known, at least according to some sources, Teddy did not pull the trigger, but he did order his men to kill the bear. So, so the original teddy bear did die a violent death. So that's a fun fact to tell kids. <laughs> Lovely, yeah. <laughs> AJ, thank you. And Jason Hairston, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Would you please welcome our next guest, Gwendolyn Dordick. Gwendolyn, come on up. Hello, Gwendolyn. Uh, What do you do? I'm a sociologist at the City University of New York. Uh, What kind of work do you do and what do you have to tell us about tonight? Well, I've been spending several years with a colleague of mine studying panhandlers in lower Manhattan. Hmm. We keep getting the same question over and over again is why are people so frickin' hung up hmm. on whether or not they should give to a panhandler? Discuss. Right, because there's the whole standard, well, I want to be the kind of person that helps people, but I want to make my helping smart and sensible. Do you I have that conversation? Be, I got to be honest with you, I don't think that way. I generally do give to people on the yeah. street. You're not tormented about it. You're not thinking, well, if I give this person $10, they're just well, going to... Okay, first of all, I'm not giving anyone $10, <laughs> so let's back up. Um, I was like, kind of raised to mm-hmm. give. Um, I wouldn't say it's every single person, but I How do you say, decide? There's a, there's a criteria that goes in my head. Uh, I'm oh, a sucker for anyone singing an acapella situation on the subway. Okay. If I'm walking down the street and I have some singles in my wallet, it feels like, why not? Or if I have food with me in my bag, I don't think it's like that much effort. And Gwendolyn, would you say that Sass's position is essentially typical or not very typical? Oh, it's not typical at all. So you're asking why are people so hung up? And I would say panhandling being what it is, an established means of separating some kind of people from money that maybe I'm being played for a sucker and I don't like. That, that would be my answer. Yeah, well, and, it's, and the reason you have that is because you just don't have enough information. Mm-hmm. It's all about information. We want to know where our money's going. So how about if we credential panhandlers? Mm. 
And there have been credentialing systems in the past. Like a name tag? Well, there was something called beggar's badges in the 15th century. And in Ireland and Great Britain, the sheriff would distribute these beggar's badges. Hmm. They were given to the people because they couldn't say that there was any other way that they could make money. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they would give them the badges. So it's an official government it, credential. Yeah, it's government issued. So you're <laughs> saying if you could demonstrate that you had no way to earn a living, right. then you could get credentialed to be a public yes. beggar. Yes, and it also works in terms of pilgrims. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of pilgrimages, again... We'd get communion tokens, mm-hmm. and they would get the communion tokens so they could go and they could beg for money. Is there a modern version yes. of this? Is there a proposal there for this? Is, there are kind of credential systems that are currently going on. The big issue, which is in London and in Melbourne, you pay for the stack of newspapers, and that serves as a proxy for a credential. By selling the newspaper, you're demonstrating that you're working, and that is a proxy for people to say, well, then you're worthy of me giving you money because you're working. But there are current emerging credential systems now. There's something called the Samaritan app in uh, Seattle, Washington, and it's essentially an app that um, somebody has, and the panhandler has a beacon. And when someone who has the app is close to the beacon, they'll know that they're next to a panhandler who has been credentialed. We can't get rid of panhandlers. They've been here for a very long time. They are the public face of poverty. But this is one way to try to figure out a way to give people who are in need something that they can use And whether it's for drugs or alcohol, if you think that's the case, Pope Francis said something really cool. He said that giving something to someone in need is always right. And if a glass of wine is the only happiness he has in life, that's okay. Mm. Hmm. That is a lovely thought. Uh, A.J. Jacobs, panhandler credentialing. Um, Gwendolyn Dordick has been telling us that there is some historical precedent, a movement to re-engage with that idea, although some difficulties. What more can you tell us? Yeah, just to uh, flesh out the historical precedent, it was in the it was called the Vagabond Act, and they allowed disabled, sick, and elderly people to get begging licenses. But if you're able-bodied, not allowed to beg, and if you were caught, you would get branded with a V for vagabond, and then if you got caught again, you would be put to death. Oh, so tougher than Giuliani <laughs> yeah. back in the uh, the 90s. AJ, thank you, and Gwendolyn Dordick, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Nicely done. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests. We will make Sass Goldberg tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend one, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker is AJ Jacobs. And tonight's co-host is Sass Goldberg. Before we get back to our game, we've got some lightning round questions written especially for Sass. Are you ready for these? I am certainly ready. So, Sass Goldberg, I've read that it's your lifelong dream to learn how to properly wrap a present. Yes. What do you find so hard about that relatively simple task? Something for me is I really, before I become a mom so soon, I really would love to learn how to wrap a present. It feels like kind of like motherhood a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And um, I find a lot of things challenging with it. I find the size being an issue. I feel like if you don't have a box... 
you're really screwed. Yeah. So it's like, what do you do when you have a shirt or something soft? And then I feel like every time I say it, everyone laughs, but I, I'm totally serious about it. Right, so let's make a little uh, wish list for Sass Goldberg, shall we? Shower. Shower. Uh, present wrapping lessons. Yes. All right, we'll see what else we can come up with by the end There's a bunch. Night. Yep. Uh, your name is spelled S-A-S, so it's a palindrome. What it are is. your other favorite palindromes? Oh, so many favorite palindromes. Where does one start? Um... Madame, thank you very much. Uh, uh, it's Sass, I'll be honest, it's a nickname. For? I was born Sari, and then about two months old, I was a really like feisty baby, yeah. and my dad started calling me Sassy, yeah. and then he had two fast food restaurants in New York City, um, and they were called Sassy Sliders, and it oh, stuck, so nice. it's been yeah. Sass ever I since. I think it's lovely. Sass, I've also read about you that you're obsessed with Dennis Quaid. True. So, just curious, when you say you're obsessed with someone, what does that, uh, how does that play out? I'm obsessed with a lot of things. I want to know the routines of people. If you listen Mm. to the questions I'm asking, Mm -hmm. it's very like, do you bring a blanket? Do you Mm. bring a pillow? I I would like to put myself, do you shower? Uh, God, who knew this was going to be such a talking point tonight? Um, But I really like to put myself in the situation of what it's like to be in that person. So, I like to know, like, what do they have for breakfast? Do they like overnight oats? Do they like hot oatmeal? Do who have they slept with? I want to know everything. So I like how you slip in the. Uh, you really just want to know who they slept with, but I'll pretend no, to I gotta know. Tell you, the oatmeal thing is just as interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, do you do this because you're an actor and that's the way you think about working, or you're just a nosy person? No, I'm just yeah, nosy. Yeah. Um, in thirty seconds or less, tell us everything there is to know about how to be a good actor. Okay, in 30 seconds or less, I think be prepared, know your lines, um, but being over-prepared, I think, is a detriment. So I try to kind of go in there and have a little bit of a wing-it situation. Okay. Even when we spoke right before we did this, I was like, I don't want to overthink it. Um, so that's what I would say. And I also think listening is probably really big. That doesn't sound to me like acting somehow. Like, oh. you have to do <laughs> okay. stuff too, right? Like, you have to, like, talk and move around. Those are the well, yeah, things I think for people who aren't actors, those are the things that we think like, wow, how do you... But as an actor, you don't think like, what's my face going to look like here? Mm. Where do I put you my don't. arms? No, never. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was Sass Goldberg. Nicely done. Oh, sweating. All right, let's get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next guest, Jackie Courtney. <laughs> Hi, Jackie. What do you do? I am the founder of NearlyNewlywed.com. It's an online marketplace for brides to buy new and verified pre-owned dresses and accessories. Oh, that is so much better than what I first thought when I heard the name (laughs) Nearly Newlywed. Um, (laughs) So tell us something that you think we should know that we don't. I think that a lot of people think that brides want to hold on to their dress, pass it down to their daughter. What percentage of modern brides actually want to do that versus... Um, either selling it or hmm. passing it along to someone. Or... Says the lady who makes a living buying secondhand, right? Or buying once used or um, once or we, more? We sell new and pre-owned gowns. Gotcha. So I can so, only speak to my friends. Like, I don't know anyone that's, like, preserved their wedding dress. Really? To be totally honest with you. And mine's in a ball in the middle of my in-law's house. But I would like to do something with it. Right, but well, I can help you out with there that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, what percentage of people want to or do sell? Want to and or do. Want to and or do. And you, let me ask you this. On the want to part, you know that how? Surveys or? Yes. Uh, proprietary data. We've worked with a lot of stores and done a lot of surveying of brides, um, both online and in person. Uh, so I'm guessing from the way you're asking the question and from Sass's response that it's relatively high, but it sounds as though... I, not having been a bride myself, I gather that there is a stigma associated with 
wearing a dress that's not new. Is that, is that the issue? Who wants your dirty dress? Yeah. They're not actually dirty. I mean, out of everything that you wear, I mean, like, I'm going to wear this romper again multiple times. Um, a dress is worn for maybe a few hours for photos and then the ceremony. Most brides now actually change to a second, sometimes third gown. I actually started the business because I was a publicist, so I worked with designers and really high-end gowns. They weren't bridal gowns, but they were essentially gowns. And so the same gown would be like down the runway in Italy, and then it would be on the cover of Vogue, Mm. and then Gwyneth Paltrow would wear it. And so those are actually worn quite a bit more than a wedding gown is. Um, And there's no stigma there. And I think that one of the reasons that there's less and less of a stigma now is because there's more transparency into all those things. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. Women 10, 20, 30 years ago didn't. I guess the thing that I'm thinking is just that because the wedding gown is such a symbolic garment, it's more than obviously just a garment. Like, I can imagine a lot of people don't want to have to go to the trouble to preserve or pass along, but I can also imagine that people would be conflicted about giving it up because it feels like part of my story. So is there an actual number that you know and can tell us? Yes. So 25% or less actually care about really like holding Mm. on to their gown for either sentimental purposes or for their daughter. One of the best parts of my job is that I get to talk to women like that and be like, oh, not only are you repurposing your gown and someone that maybe either couldn't have afforded it or just loved it is able to use it again, but here's a couple grand Mm -hmm. for like this next adventure that's past your wedding. What share of the original price is typically recouped if I sell my once used wedding gown? It really depends on the timelines. Bridal trends don't change as much as maybe fashion trends. So if it's two years old or less, um, probably up to 60%. That's a lot. I would think for a used... I'd say uh, on average, it's somewhere between like, you get like about half back. I mean, it really depends. It does suggest that a good side business would be stealing recently worn wedding gowns (laughs) and selling them to you. I think that is a fantastic business model. Well, thank you. Um, Can I just ask you... I think we've all heard about wedding dresses are white because they represent virginity or purity, et cetera. Is that true? I think it's arguable, um, but it's mostly kind of a myth. Um, Actually, like in the 1800s, um, Queen Victoria wore this big white gown, and it was very shocking. Before that, actually, women either wore dresses already in their closet, things they could actually easily rewear, or I think red was actually very popular. Yeah, I could see that would be a, a show, a luxury good in that I am so A, wealthy, and B, such a neat eater that I can wear a white, white dress even at my wedding. Yes, exactly. All right, AJ Jacobs, what do you have to say about secondhand wedding dresses? Uh, well, I think recycling wedding dresses seems like a good idea. There are a bunch of websites with other ideas of how to recycle, so you can cut up your wedding dress and transform it into lingerie. Uh, you can splatter your wedding dress with blood for a Halloween costume. That's another a one. Aggressive. Uh, can I actually add my favorite wedding dress fact that I stumbled on? <laughs> In a traditional Hopi wedding, this is the Native American tribe, the Hopi, the wedding dress is woven by the bridegroom and his friends. Hmm. So this is their bachelor party, the sewing oh. circle. <laughs> no strip clubs. I think it's great, you know, if, if there's some woke bachelors out there, this is like a nice idea. Yeah. Um, AJ, thank you. And Jackie Courtney, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. 
It's time for one last break. When we return, a couple more guests, and then you, our live audience, will pick a winner. That's right after this. Yeah. Welcome back. Would you please welcome our next guest, James Lendemer. Come on up, James. Hello, James. Uh, what do you do? Uh, I'm a scientist at the New York Botanical Garden. All right, so you've got something to tell us about your work, I gather. Sure. So I would like you to try and guess what the actual manna from heaven in the Bible was. Hmm, what the actual... Manna from heaven? So manna, the, the realness of it has been debated whether obviously there actually was something like manna. There's actually a scientific paper on this subject, so uh, I assure you it's, about been, whether, it's, been thought, it's been thought through pretty thoroughly. Okay, <laughs> so you're saying, um, so the assumption is that there indeed was manna from yes, heaven. Yes, if and we're going with the assumption. If yeah, we're going with the then assumption we know what was, it is. that appeared overnight literally overnight, and uh, the Israelites were able to scrape it off the earth, rocks, etc., and eat it. Does it have something to do with a volcano? (laughs) (laughs) No. All right, so what is it? So they're lichens. Lichens? Duh. So what's a lichen? So lichens are fungi. Uh, They're fungi that have evolved this really special relationship with algae for the purposes of obtaining nutrition. So basically, the algae live inside them, and the fungi provide, like, a house for them. Hmm. That's why they can live in, like, all these crazy habitats on volcanoes uh, and in Antarctica, lots of places. Wait, let's back up. So the answer volcano was correct, ultimately. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I guess since you're the host, I have to say Uh, that. You don't, actually. But so there, I mean, so basically, we know that uh, when the Israelites were, or we know that in the region where they would have been wandering in the desert, there's these two species of lichens that grow on the ground, um, and they look kind of like little bubbly, cauliflowery-looking things. Uh, and they're dry, but when they, and they're brown when they're dry, but when it's dewy, they kind of puff up and turn a little greenish, oh. and then the sun comes out and dries oh, them no out, and kidding. they turn brown. So they're kind of inert or dormant-ish. Yes. Sure. And then they get some moisture. Mm-hmm. So we actually know, you know, if, if that's what happened, then it was a lichen. It was probably two species. We mm. actually know the two species. Is it lichens or lichen? So the singular is lichen and the plural is lichen. Oh, like words. Easy. Yeah, yes, words. word and words. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Well, but so, a lot of people get that wrong. I actually, but what, is there such a thing as a lichen? Yeah. One is a lichen. Uh, like lichen us on Facebook would be one lichen. And I've never heard that joke before. <laughs> <laughs> I believe this is the snarkiest botanist I've ever met. How many botanists do you know? Point exactly. All right, so 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 um so wait, can you go so back to So they were also the... responsible for or they were also heavily harvested for dyes before we developed all these chemical synthetic dyes. And so in the UK, uh in the British Isles before the war, uh there's a long history going back especially in Scotland of people being paid to harvest these things mm-hmm. in large quantities and then they were also paid to collect their urine and give it to the companies and then produce dyes. So that's actually how Harris Tweed is, I think, still died, was died. Uh, and there was a whole industry that was built around this. Eventually collapsed because uh, lichens are not sustainable. Why They're not? really yeah. sensitive to uh, disturbance and pollution. How can something be so hardy to live in a volcano and yet still be a kind of canary in the coal mine for pollution? And that is the paradox that makes them so amazing. Ah, the mm. lichen paradox. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they can survive in these really extreme places, but they're extremely specialized to survive there. So when anything changes, they can't adapt to that really easily, and they 
don't do very well. They can be very delicate. Yeah, they're surprisingly delicate, mm. exquisitely so. When they were used for dyes, does that uh, imply that lichens come in many different colors, or is that not really part of the no, equation? That's my next question. So the urine reacts with the substances in the lichen. So the lichens, these fungi, make thousands and thousands of compounds that exist nowhere else in nature. So there's all these crazy chemicals that they produce for a variety of reasons, um, and those are the things that actually make the dyes. And so some of them react with the urine uh, and they change colors. My question is, can you just talk a little bit more about the evidence that the manna was lichen? It's mainly just that there's not very much else that grows in those places. And it is one of the few things. So lichens have this ability to sort of dry out and go inert, uh, sort of in metabolically inactive, like those frogs and stuff that live in the ice or, you know, they go hibernate. And for um, how long could a lichen for live like really that? Really protracted periods of time. We don't really have a great idea of how Days, long. Days, weeks, months, years? Probably all of the above depends on the species and where it is. So we like shot them into space and put them on the outside of the space shuttle and brought them back to Earth and they got you know, started living again. Like, yeah, it's crazy. I feel like you should be telling us about all the other things we should be using these amazing lichens for then. Well, what? we're all in all sorts of things and most people probably just don't realize it. Um, like, give us an example. Well, some of the chemicals are made as UV protectants. Some of them are used in medicine. So in like natural toothpaste, there's lichens chemicals extracted from lichens. You can make booze out of them. And your job at the New York Botanical Garden is, are you some kind of lichen wrangler? Is that what you do there? I'm a lichen hunter. A lichen hunter. Do you work exclusively with lichens? Yes, I do. Oh my God, that's a job. Yeah. AJ Jacobs, uh, what shall we call this entry into our game? How about (laughs) you lichen me? You really lichen me. (laughs) (laughs) This one is a little hard to fact check. Uh, There is a debate about how historically accurate Exodus is, like whether it actually happened. Uh, And if there was manna, then lichen is certainly one popular theory. There have other theories include resin or locusts. And I like this one, hallucinogenic mushrooms. Uh, That would would explain Deuteronomy. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way... Weirdly enough, I am a longtime fan of lichen. And I wrote a section in one of my books about how lichen is an unsung hero of the American Revolution. George Washington's starving troops mm-hmm. ate lichen off the rocks at Valley Forge. They made it into a soup. So God bless lichen, you know? If it weren't for lichen, we'd be playing cricket and eating mince pies and God knows what. <laughs> James Lendemer, thank you yeah. so much for playing Tell Me Something thank I Don't you. Know. That was fascinating. And uh, would you please welcome our final guest of the evening, Mark Oshima. Come on up, Mark. All right, Mark Oshima, tell us uh, where you're from. What do you do? Sure, I'm from New York City, and I happen to work in Newark, New Jersey. I'm one of the co-founders for a company called AeroFarms. What is AeroFarms? So we're an indoor vertical farming company, so Mm -hmm. thinking about how we can transform agriculture and really think about how we can bring farms to the cities and we grow in in abandoned warehouse spaces. Hmm. Okay, tell us the most mind-blowing thing about vertical farming. Well, that's really kind of the premise. How do we farm without sun or soil? And that's one of the things that we've been perfecting and doing since 2004. We think about some of the challenges that we have today in farming. We think about drought, we think about uh, pest issues. So we need new paradigms and this idea that we can farm indoors 
And we can actually bring the farm and we can actually create jobs and year-round employment and then increase more access to food. So the way we grow, it's actually called aeroponics. We grow in water, with water. So, so you so said no of Babylon. soil and no soil? sun. No soil or sun. That's right. So plants don't need sunlight. They actually need spectrum of light. So the idea that we can use science and understand what the plants need, and we can actually be more targeted, have actually more effective photosynthesis and be able to have a very high you know, growing output. The idea of no soil either, we look at the 17 essential elements the plant needs, and we actually deliver that through both the water and the nutrients, and we actually are misting the roots in a very targeted way. It's a way of growing that allows us to grow with 95% less water than the field farmer and 40% than even hydroponics. Are they in rows? Are they in big expanses? I'm seeing like tanks, like fish tanks. So no, this is, think about like a warehouse. These are vertical beds stacked on top of each other. And the idea that all of a sudden it's not just growing per square foot, it's growing per cubic foot. So all of a sudden we can have that kind of productivity and really have the right kind of economies of scale and grow beautiful produce. So something that may take 30 to 45 days to grow out in the field, Mm -hmm. we can grow in 12 to 16 days. I've always wondered that because everything has a kind of optimal growing circumstance, right? Temperature, even humidity, whatever, right? So can you just basically engineer it to get to that optimum and keep it at the same time? Yeah, there are a number of things that we can do to help accelerate it. So we actually develop these growing recipes, growing algorithms that factor in uh, whether it's the seed, the, the, the genetics of the seed, and then the light. When I mentioned out in the field, it may take 30 to 45 days to grow. I mean, that's a huge variable, right? What is that? That's usually the sunlight, right? Mm-hmm. So you think about time of year, you think about weather. So you think about any kind of business that actually had that kind of variability, it's pretty tough to manage. And so we can bypass that. We can actually have the level of control. So since plants evolved to grow in nature... How does it change the ultimate output of the plant when it's growing in a different kind of cycle? In other words, does that introduce any kind of stresses on the plant? Does it taste different, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so stresses are actually good when you think about color or that's a stress, that's a reaction, that's actually a protective. So we can actually identify, you know, what are these levers so we can stress the plant. We can optimize not only for nutrition but taste, texture, color, and then ultimately yield. There's no pesticides, I gather, because there's, there's no, no pests pesticide. in your warehouse, right? right? Right. Are they all in Newark right now? So today, uh, the nine farms, um, we have four that are in Newark. Uh, other farms have been around, the, and even overseas, we've had a farm in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia since 2011. So the idea of being able to grow in very tough uh, environments. We have projects in development all over the world. AJ, anything to add about indoor vertical farming? Well, it is really interesting because uh, apparently uh, you use less than 1% of land of traditional farming, 5% of the water. So it does sound too good to be true, but the New Yorker did a whole Ah. article on Aero Farms, and they seem to give it their blessing, and they're much better fact-checkers than I am. (laughs) Super interesting. Thank you so much for coming to tell us about Aero Farming. And let's give one more hand to all our guests tonight. Fantastic stuff. It is time now for our live audience to pick a winner. But first, Sass Goldberg, AJ Jacobs, and I will each weigh in with our favorites. Remember the three criteria. Did the guest tell us something we truly did not know? Mm-hmm. Was it worth knowing? And was it demonstrably true? So, Sass, I'm curious if anything particularly caught your ear tonight. Two things really caught my ear. Like, I'm kind of turned on and excited about these lichens idea. I didn't know anything about it. And arrow farms. I think this sounds like an incredible sort of thing, and it sounds like there's the future is vast with it. So those are the two things that really piqued my interest personally. AJ? 
You know I'm a fan of lichen. Uh, but <laughs> I have to say, if vertical farming, if this actually does pan out, we need good news. We yes. desperately need good news. So this made me very mm -hmm. happy. I share your enthusiasm for vertical farming. I share your enthusiasm for lichens. I learned a great deal about lichens I did not know. I also just want to say... Jason Hairston, who was our first guest tonight, I sometimes think about what I would do if I were somewhere and got in trouble. Yeah. You know, if something bad were to happen or if you're in a survival situation. And the answer to that question is always, I would just die. <laughs> and so Jason, just I feel like just standing within, you know, five feet of him, I feel like a little bit of him rubbed off you on me. You got stronger. Yeah, I got stronger. Um, I love the idea of panhandler credentialing, especially because it addresses the moral dilemma. Um, so I can't really pick a favorite, but I, I so enjoyed um, learning from everyone tonight. And the good news is we don't have to pick the winner because it's the audience's job to do this. So audience, would you please take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen. So who will it be? Jason Hairston with why you should pre-blister your feet. Gwendolyn Dordick with Panhandler Credentials, Jackie Courtney with Secondhand Wedding Dresses, James Lendemer with Everything We Never Knew About Lichens, We're Thrilled to Know, or Mark Oshima with The Upside of Arrow Farming. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to the show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guest presenters. It's a shame there can only be one winner, but that's the way it works. And our winner tonight, thank you so much for telling us all about Lichens, James Lendemer. Congratulations. Yay! And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know. Huge thanks to Sass and AJ, to our guests, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. I don't know. Thank you so much. On the next Tell Me Something I Don't Know, we close out the season with maybe our best episode yet. Our co-host is the brilliant John McWhorter. Our guests include a skyscraper expert, a forensic linguist, and, I'm not kidding, an astronaut. The people who prepare our stuff, they take a Sharpie and they mark on your diaper, front. <laughs> no kidding. And you're very grateful they do that because the worst thing you'd want is to find out, hey, I must have put my diaper on backwards <laughs> while I'm spacewalking. That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>